0: terroir is is all important and that echoing the place that grapes the grapes are grown is paramount perhaps to the varietal however some varietals really capture that essence and I think the one in Washington that does far more than anything else is Syrah.
1: And welcome to Disgorged, a fun and spirited look at the world of wine and drinking. I'm your host, Zach Chabal, and coming up in a bit, I speak with sommelier slash winemaker Jeff Lindsay Thorson about making and selling wine in Seattle. But first, a thought. I fucking hate it when people ask me what my favorite wine is, but I understand the impulse. It's never a question I'll answer definitively, but living and working in the Seattle area has given me an incredible appreciation for Washington Syrah, especially the styles that have emerged relatively recently. The more of it I taste, especially the wines made by my guests today and others of a similar mind, the more I realize how much diversity there is within that relatively narrow category. As I talk about with Jeff, the various vineyard sites in Washington can lead to wildly different expressions of Syrah, even when the winemaking is completely identical. I recently had the chance to taste my staff on a pair of Syrahs made by two vintners, one sourced from the Horse Heaven Hills and the other from the Rocks District. Many couldn't believe that the only difference in the wines was the vineyard as they were so remarkably dissimilar. It's that incredible variability that places Syrah right at the top of my list of favorite grapes. Yet it's essential that winemakers, especially those in newer regions, understand what Syrah is and isn't. It can't be made in a super ripe style and slathered with oak, unless you don't want to have any sense of place. But neither can it be treated with kid gloves the way that many handle Pinot Noir. As a previous guest on the show said, you kind of have to beat it up. As winemakers up and down the West Coast get more familiar with Syrah, I have no doubt that one day spots like the Sonoma Coast, Roque Valley, Horse Heaven Hills, and the Rocks will be talked about the way Syrah lovers now banter about Cote Roti and Hermitage. If you're interested in dynamic and exciting Syrahs, as well as a host of other wines, and you're in Seattle, check out my brand new pop up wine bar, also called Disgorged. You can join me every Tuesday for wine, fun, and conversation. For more information, please visit disgorgedwine.com. And now, on with the show. Joining me on Discourse is Jeff Lindsay Thorson. He's the winemaker and owner at uh, W.T. Vintners in Woodinville, as well as the wine director at RN74 in Seattle. Uh, Jeff, thanks so much for joining me.
0: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah. Uh, so this is first a very, very simple but very, very complicated question. How did you first get interested in wine?
0: Um, kind of all started out. I uh, grew up in Southern California, and my mother was always taking you know trips uh, up to the Central Coast, up to Napa and whatnot. And then, uh, I guess, in my early adult years, around uh, yep post high school, um, it started kind of climbing the corporate ladder and was living with this living with a woman at the time whose father had this monster wine collection. and so uh, from essentially nineteen to twenty one, I got to try a lot of the world's great wines whether you know, from Lafitte and Mouton to Old amarone and to Penfolds Grange, and really kind of got to discover the world of. Albeit kind of bigger, bolder wines, kind of some of the the archetypes and world's greats. Um, and at the same time, my mother was dating a man with a Chateauneuf to pop fetish, so they were oh, on a mission yeah. to try every Chateauneuf. Um, and between that and a fake ID, I got to try <laughs> a lot of really, really extraordinary wines and great in uh, with the marriage of. Food And so it piqued my interest and I started reading up and specifically I started to read uh, there's a book called Great Wines and Vintages and I need to grab it and look at it again. I, I'd be curious to see what my impression of it would be today. But from a novice standpoint, it really just kind of touched on all these great estates, you know, including, you know, Grand Chateau in Bordeaux, including, you know, Lafitte Mouton, Margot, Akem. But it also touched on Chateau Moussard and that winery, winery specifically really piqued my interest. Um, right in that moment, I was transitioning out of kind of, I had a, an epiphany where I thought, what the fuck am I doing? Um, I hate my job. I'm 21 years old and I'm like having, I'm just, I'm bogged down at a desk. This is not the direction I want to go. So I decided to go back to school and pursue my passions. And maybe uh, they're kind of vacillating between ethnobotany and cultural anthropology and uh, wine uh, somehow and you know, encapsulated that whole human experience and different cultures and different places and travel, and it all just converged in wine. And then with uh, in that book, Great Wines and Vintages, the, the story of Chateau Musar and their trials or tribulations, they're defying all all reason to make this to make this fascinating, delicious beverage um, through you know a war torn area through transporting being so committed to their craft that they take wines from from the mountains out across you know into the sea and then back to land just to try to pull off a vintage and like Mm -hmm. that kind of just story of humanity and you know kind of triumph over adversity and in the pursuit of pleasure really just resonated with me and so from there i found out about this uh thing called a sommelier and I started uh, waiting tables while I was going to school and it kind of turned out uh, even just as a little hobby I kind of had a this wine thing I was pretty good at and passionate about and as I got into fine dining it totally all just spiraled out of control and so now I'm uh, you know I'm 15 years deep in the in the wine biz and it's uh, you know got my hands in a lot of pots and uh, you know love every aspect of it
1: yeah and that's a really cool uh a really cool kind of uh juxtaposition of like these you know like you said sort of the grand uh, chateau of of bordeaux and and the names that are sort of very very synonymous with that you know history and and its own kind of culture and then yeah musar and in lebanon is just kind of this uh, yeah it's like uh, this it's like there, there's this like just kind of tenacity to to what they do that is just yeah like you said it's kind of mind-blowing that that people they didn't just kind of give up at some point when it probably most everyone else would have you know sort of cashed in their chips and said hey it's just not meant to be yeah that's that it's it's powerful wine even if it wasn't even if it wasn't as good as it was it would be meaningful uh, just for that but fortunately it's also quite tasty absolutely um okay so then uh how did you make your way to seattle um so
0: i'd uh was my mother had moved up when i right literally the week i graduated from high school my mom uh, my mom and my younger brother We'd had uh, some some challenges, and my mom and my brother decided they needed uh, a, just a change, get out of Southern California, something a little more, you know, perhaps authentic and grounded, and they moved up to Whidbey Island, and my mom started a bed and breakfast in Day Spa, and I'd saved up money and went and traveled around the world, uh, mostly, you know, focusing really on Indonesia and surfing, all, surfing for several months, um, ran out of money, and came up here to the Northwest and thought, good God, what have I done living on a small island as an 18 year old was not awesome. <laughs> um, and, then, uh, so moved back down to Southern California. Uh, I was working for Nordstrom and that, and I referenced you know, climbing the corporate ladder. I kind of was working for Nordstrom and had, had found my way back there and then met a woman, ironically, up here and she was either going to move down or I was going to move up. And it didn't make any sense with her family in in the Seattle area, as well as, uh, my mom and my brother. and So I moved back up and, but uh, put roots down in Seattle and Capitol Hill, and then uh, felt far more, far more at home and far more stimulated. And so that's uh, that's what brought me here. Gotcha. Uh,
1: and so, um, you know, you're obviously, uh, you know, you mentioned sort of the the passion for wine and getting into it from the sort of uh, restaurant sommelier side of things, but uh, also now a winemaker and have been for uh, quite some time, actually about a decade, right? Is that how? the has yeah. been around that long.
0: Two thousand and seven was our first and uh, you know, first time tinkering um, with two barrels. Yeah,
1: so yeah, decade now in. Um, what's the? Do you sort of view wine differently when you are kind of in the in the sommelier uh, role versus when you are the winemaker and and I guess uh, you know also a person selling the wine? Like, do you or, or how do you approach wine? Um, maybe I guess differently now that you make it. Um, if you do, maybe you don't.
0: Um, I guess they both trades or crafts kind of influence each other pretty substantially so on the my whole intention of becoming a winemaker well was not to become a winemaker uh, from the start I just wanted to be better a better sommelier and I had in 2003 I started taking taking courses with the International Sommelier Guild and um, taken there through their diploma program as far as I could go and as, at the time and they and then I just but I just wanted more I felt like there was a really substantial piece missing so I went and worked a harvest in the Willamette Valley in Oregon um, and thought wow this is really cool and then ended up coming up here and helping out the following vintage in here in Washington working with board over idols from Red Mountain and then thought you know but it's always this kind of when you work a harvest it's always fleeting because you you get a taste and then it's and then kind of once that last press load goes through or or you run out of time and got to go back to a paying job kind of miss you miss the full experience and so the following vintage is wanting to uh wanting to really see it see the process through um and ultimately just so when i talked to guests i had you know a deep understanding of what was going on and why why wine tastes the way it does why you know what from an uh artistry as well as uh chemistry standpoint what shapes wine um, from particular places and particular styles and what drives those styles and how different techniques impact, impact those styles. And, and then um, when talking to the guest, never saying any of that um, (laughs) because they don't give a shit and nor should they, their, their, their intention is to have something that's going to bring them pleasure and, you know, make their date prettier and make their, you know, make their food taste better. So, um, but I think having a deeper, that deeper understanding had, allows me to kind of read between the lines with the, with the guest and hopefully help them steer in steer them in a direction more suitable to one and perhaps most importantly what they want to drink and then to what's going to best suit their meal. Um, and on the sommelier side, you know that how that impacts my impacts my perception of wine and wine making, I'm certainly perhaps more astute to winemaking technique and how that impacts the wine. But also in on the winemaking side, in steering our you know steering the direction of the wine, you know, it really comes down to when we pick in the vineyards and making sure that flavors are certainly optimal um, as I perceive them, which perhaps don't fall in line with what uh, what others perceive as optimal. I really kind of try to shy away from that jammy fruit and whenever possible, um, lower alcohols. I'm making wine in the desert of Eastern Washington, so I'm under no under no illusions that, uh, you know, when the vintage calls for it, um, big wines happen. But, uh, when, when flavors develop appropriately, I certainly, uh, you know, lean towards more restrained wines that to my mind are more complimentary to a more diverse palette of foods, but also, um, just have more focus. And I really talk a lot about synergy when I talk about food and wine pairing, Mm -hmm. but also just in, a wine in, you know, just as a dish needs all the components of acid, sweet, savory, spicy, if necessary, or of the, you know, the style of cuisine, all of those flavors interplay into something that's balanced. And we do the same thing with winemaking. You're capturing that moment where you have a ripeness of fruit, you have you know, a, a development of tannins that are integrated and for us we don't use any new oak so that we use a lot of whole cluster which in which imparts a bit more tannic structure as well as some savory components which just brings another layer of nuance and hopefully helps elevate the sense of the wine's kind of completeness and balance Mm -hmm. um and so that it's you know not not dissimilar from a chef in the way we kind of approach approach our winemaking and so i think they've been so you know doubling back to your question as a they're so inextricably, inextricably linked that um, one isn't one isn't doesn't outweigh the other. They've both kind of have my skill set in both both fields. is kind of they've grown along side by side, and so differentiating the two. Obviously, you know the the processes are different, and the but the end goal is relatively the same. It's to just to create an experience that's uh, ultimately about you know pleasure and my time working with great chefs has kind of allowed me to hone my palate and mm-hmm. as well as working with great sommeliers and and great restaurants with great budgets that allow me to taste the great some, you know the greatest wines the world has to offer all bring kind of a little bring a little more know-how and a little more context so that i can create an experience for my guests in the restaurant through food and wine pairing from working with the, whole, the palate of the whole world and then through WT and Raconteur, creating something that is uh, unique, but yet still varietally correct and balanced.
1: Yeah, and it seems like that analogy to a chef is really, I think, an apt one, because it's its often my perception that the, the best winemakers, um, and I guess the best sommeliers in a different way, sort of understand that the skill in winemaking and cooking, whatever, is in sort of allowing the flavors of the whatever the raw ingredients are to show through in a way that isn't... Where, where the where the uh, di- the things that the the decisions the techniques whatever that the chef winemaker et cetera, has applied are only evident if you really know what you're looking for and that you know we've sort of evolved away from a, a culture of cuisine that's really really you know overwrought and you know i guess if you think of like the really classic french cuisine just like everything is drowned in sauce and covered in you know in in, in all these other things that are, are not really the the central ingredient and in winemaking i think you know the stuff that excites me for the most part is where, you know, the winemaker understands, as you said, sort of the gentle steering of the ship. It's not – they're not trying to, you know, uh, I don't know, uh, do something far more complicated.
0: Yeah, I think – like and in that, it's really about uh, – about I guess the best analogy for me is like an Italian uh, – you know, great Italian chefs or, you know, a very mature chef where, you know, when you're – and I think this is kind of also applies to to Washington as a wine region – um, you know, the, a young chef will throw, you know, 25 different plate uh, ingredients on a plate. And particularly now that we're into a more kind of deconstructed dots, foams, bubbles, gels and all of this shit um, you have. With that, you have, you know, a young chef will put, you know, 17 different components on a plate and it looks really pretty, but there's no continuity of flavors. And in a young region like Washington, where I think where we're. we're and we are I think we've we have evolved a lot in the last decade, but we kind of still, some people are trying to recreate Bordeaux. Some people are trying to recreate Napa. Other people have this other point of reference and maybe it's a great Washington wine. So you throw a shill out of oak at it and from half a dozen different coopers. And then you take all of these, you take all of these different uh, vineyards and throw them all together. And it's like, yes, we made the best possible thing because there's so many things going on. And then you take, a mature chef or, a, you know, great Italian cuisine and there's five ingredients and, you know, max and, but you're using the best possible ingredients, um, and capturing them at the perfect ripeness or perfect maturity. And you create something that's so much more seamless and, and complete with, with less. And that's uh, kind of, I wouldn't say, I'm you know, I, I am not a mature winemaker nor am I a mature, Chef by any stretch, but they, I I see the vision and I've gotten to work with with those with people at that skill set, and so it helped. It's given me a lot of insight to step back and kind of get out of the way and let uh, you know let let the magic that is there happen versus trying to create it.
1: So you exclusively work with uh, Rhone varietals. What is it that drew you to to that sort of style of wine and and those uh, those varietals here in Washington?
0: Well, I guess the the one thing I'd add is I do have – I've got an acre at Seven Springs in uh, El Amity Hills. Oh, okay. So I'm making Pinot Noir as well, but uh, you haven't uh, gotten to try any of that yet. We'll bottle our our 2015 here actually in a couple weeks. But uh, to the Rhone focus in Washington um, and coming back to what I think about just this kind of less is more and something that's really complete, I think Washington – we can make great Cabernet – Pretty much everywhere in Washington, but it tastes like and it tastes like great Cabernet. Um, And I think Merlot is highly underrated in Washington, but um, it's also treated as such in most wineries, so you don't get to experience the full potential. Um, But for uh, for me, I think uh, you know, and having this old world palate and this kind of deeper connection to this old world sensibility, I really feel that terroir is is all important, and that. Echoing the place that grapes, the grapes are grown is paramount, perhaps to the varietal. However, some varietals really capture that essence. And I think the one in Washington that does far more than anything else is Syrah. Um, it, you know, we make at this point, we make four different single vineyard Syrahs and you can line them up side by side. They're all distinctly Syrah. They're all from the same clone, as a matter of fact. But um, the only difference in winemaking is some whole cluster um choices that i make you know during fermentation other than that made the same um unless there's a you know there's some sort of problem the kind of thing reduction or something stinky they're from there they have the same barrel treatment they all go into old barrels it's all about just capturing the place and for me Syrah captures that place the other thing is that sarah is a really complete grape it has without you don't have to hit it with a lot of oak you don't have to it doesn't require a lot of technique uh, it doesn't require a blend it really has all of the elements mm-hmm. um, within the single, the single varietal, whereas you know, you're, you'll seldom uh, have a bottle of, have a bottle of Cabernet, have a bottle of Grenache, have a bottle of just about a, uh, of wine that is truly a hundred percent of something because they kind of uh think of it kind of like a donut like if you look at Bordeaux varietals like Cabernet is this wonderful ring it has all the edges and everything but it's missing a little something in the middle um and so that's where you fill it in with Merlot um or Petit Verdot or Cabernet Franc and and they all have this this complementary character and they also soak up oak and reflect it really beautifully whereas Syrah I think you throw oak at it it can become a little obtuse really quickly um and it, Syrah naturally has this has you know it has this innate smokiness which you know normally people utilize oak to add to a wine. Um, it has spice. It has bright, it has generous fruit. Um, depending on how you make it, it can have great tannic structure. It it has everything. On the other side of things, we do work with Grenache and Mouved. Um We've worked with Stony Vine in the rocks in Walla Walla, and then um, now moving forward, working with Boucher vineyard more and more. I'm kind of reflective of our style, cooler site. Um, Brighter acidity, but both vine- both vineyards are incredibly special, and we'll continue working with Stony Vine. But uh, after the freeze in 2014, we kind of pivoted over to Boucher. And what those vi- those vineyards, or pardon me, those varietals, Grenache and Mourvedre, what they bring um, is this, you know, this in the case of Mourvedre, this incredibly savage, this wildness that doesn't often happen in Washington. Um, it has there's it's just so meaty and gamey and spicy, and has this really different lens to show the place it's grown um it's a pain in the ass to farm it's a pain in the ass to get ripe even in a hot site you really have to be very mindful with the and work and the way we work with our growers to make sure that everything is that things do mature appropriately it takes great effort um and grenache i think also has the ability to really transmit the place it's grown i think we're still figuring that out in washington the vines are all very young um were so just talking to somebody uh, another winemaker last night about it and um to my mind there's a few places that are really producing extraordinary grenache um they're always pretty and juicy and and i think that it's a wine that can't be ignored in the barrel so they're off they're very well made uh, throughout washington however they're reflecting the place they're grown i think the vines are much too young if you were in france you know and specifically in chateauneuf-du-pop these young vines would all be declassified into little Cocheron and little, uh, you know, uh, lesser wines until the wine, till the vines had greater maturity. And you know, maybe talking out of my ass, but I can't think of any Grenache in the state of Washington that's
1: older than maybe 98, 99 or so. Yeah, I was gonna uh, say I don't think anything was planted before. Ever. I was gonna say mid nineties at the absolute earliest is when anyone would have put it in. So yeah. nothing's even twenty years or maybe just twenty years now.
0: Yeah. So which is still in the context of. Uh, of Grenache is very young vines. Yeah. Uh, I think, and this is, uh, this is uh, Chris Dowsett at you know, Dowsett Family and, and Beauty, he, in, a, in a conversation he was saying, he was telling me about a conversation he had with uh, some French winemakers and saying that we need, perhaps we needed to be approaching uh, Grenache in the same way we approach Zinfandel and in that it's really, um, it's these mature vines that are gonna produce something really special. And in the meantime, um, you know, you can make pretty little like van de Swaaf, but you're, to make something serious, with these young vines from these particular, from perhaps from Grenache and Ravad might not be possible.
1: Yeah. At least not yet. I mean, and you look at like, I mean, I think you look even outside of Chattanooga, but you look at like Garnacha in Spain with the, you know, kind of all the cool old vine stuff, or even in uh, Australia, the little bits I've gotten to try of some of that old vine Grenache, it is, it is strikingly different. Um, Absolutely. Uh, like how concentrated and, and yeah, really kind of reflective of the sense of place those those vines can be in a way that I yeah I would totally agree I would totally agree and, and, and think that you know young vine Grenache is just kind of it, it can be enjoyable but I wouldn't call it yeah I don't know if I'd call it serious wine quite yet. Um, I really really quickly back to Syrah though. Um, I'm curious you know the when you compare um you know you said you get I know you get some Syrah from Stony Vine you get some I think uh, what Destiny Ridge which is in Horse Heaven Hills or you have at least and then Correct. do you get do you get Boucher, Syrah, or are you, you getting much from the Yakima Valley, or are you just in those two sites?
0: So we get, uh, so we have, What do you got? Lake Haleen too, right? I forgot we that. have that's Lake, in Walla yeah. We, we work with uh, Lake Haleen and Walla- so in the foothills of the Blue Mountains in Walla Walla, um, which is deep lust soils. We work with stony vine, which is in the rocks in Walla Walla, which is the deep cobbles. Um, then we also work with Boucher, and we're right. Our block there is kind of right in mid-slope, um, adjacent to just up the hill from his house, which I think is really one of the, the prime prime spots. Um, and there, so you're in there. The soils there are you know, fairly shallow soils, and then you have a real confluence of kind of above and below floodline. There's caliche, there's which is that kind of uh, you know calc uh, calcification buildup. As well as gravel, and then into basalt. So there's really a cool confluence of soils there. Then Destiny Ridge, which is in the Horse Heaven, Um, they're really really shallow soils into into fractured basalt um, in a really windy site. So we're working the four vineyards we work with for Syrah. They're they're all Phelps clone. So brought Mm -hmm. by way of Joseph Phelps, Um, then um, but from him originally came from uh, Gigal Coiro T cuttings. Mm And then made their way to Washington via David Lake in 1980. It was that 85, 86? And planted, planted at Red Willow. So um, with that, all the same genetic material, but for dramatically different sites. All, you know, ultimately under there's there's uh, basalt happenings everywhere, but really pretty substantially different um, microclimates, airflow, access to access to groundwater, if any. And then, uh, yeah.
1: So I was going to say, you know, do you notice more sort of differentiation in those in those wines uh, when it comes to and this may be a maybe a situation where the answer is both. But but I'm wondering if you notice uh, more differentiation uh, sort of in the aromatic uh, kind of expressions of those wines when you're making them versus uh, sort of the the palate impression and maybe the structure of the wines. Is it is one more divergent than the other or do you get kind of a, a really wide range in both?
0: So Lake, so I guess I can kind of just run through them all style wise, how they, how they differ to me. Um, so destiny Ridge was the first vineyard we started working with in 2007. Um, so with a single ton, we did a a barrel, a two barrels in seven, eight and nine, then eight and nine, I went abroad to, to figure out what the hell I was doing before we, before we decided if we were going to grow this thing. Um, but destiny Ridge there, uh, If you allow it, it gets very fruity and juicy and it's pretty challenging to coax a lot of tannin out of that vineyard. It always wants to be very generous and fruit-forward. But the other benefit is, in most vintages, the flavors come on really early, so I can pick early, keep it a little more red and fresh blue-fruited. That, in in conjunction with some whole cluster to add to bring in a little more, to help temper the fruit and bring in a little structure, we can produce something that's really bright and fresh. Um, Most of the Destiny Ridge that I have from other producers that pick later tend to be um, kind of a little more ripe and ripe blue and verging on jammy um, and with pretty incredible density. But there's always this wonderful kind of sage note that hides in the background of that um, in addition to all the blue fruit. Um, then going um, to Walla Walla, you know, stony vine kind of, you know, it's it's the rocks through and through. Um, again, we pick it really early, um, which helps bring a little more fruit, helps temper a little bit of the kind of like dead animal prosciutto uh (laughs) funk that happens there uh for i think when we pick it early it's a little more like nori seaweed kind of iodine um character and a bit more understated and allow some of the kind of fruit to shine um and then part of that's kind of hanging on to some of the acid as well um but that yeah that's definitely the most kind of gamey and wild um and then lake killeen up in so this deep lust soils there um There we get, uh, which is this windblown volcanic sediment. It's like the basis of pretty much the topsoil everywhere in eastern Washington, um, which is also why we don't have phylloxera, which is awesome. Um, But anyway, so in Lake Killeen, there's always this just really beautiful floral aromatic profile that I think really echoes through all the varietals that are planted there. I think Syrah is perhaps the most suited varietal there, but they've got all kinds of stuff going. And there's always this really pretty, you know, violet, lavender, like little purple flower element that... Really resonates with that vineyard. Um, flavors do come on late, so it tends to be a bit punchier, um, higher higher alcohol, fuller bodied, but it carries it really, really well. Whereas I think other vineyards in Washington don't always uh, the high alcohol sometimes can can be a little bit obtrusive, and with uh, Lake Helen, it tends to carry it really well. Um, but that floral that floral vibrancy is always really present, and there's also a really lovely olive note in the Syrah from there that that's always present. Um, then to Boucher Boucher Vineyard uh, is has this really deep core of black fruit. Even when you pick it early, it's it's this it's this kind of brambly blackberry, boysenberry, blueberry character versus that. Higher-toned red fruit that we're able to capture it at uh, our earlier picking at Stony Vine as well as at Destiny Ridge, but it's just even when you pick it at you know, 23 bricks, which is um, around these parts, is pretty low, pretty early. We'll get uh, the flavors come on in Syrah at least come on pretty early, and we're able to pick it and have it. What one would think would be underdeveloped, but they even when it's at lower sugar levels, it has this crazy black, just this this black fruit to it, and this really. And fresh cracked pepper that comes through which i'm personally really excited about it's really cool to be able to make something so bright and fresh yet has this this mature
1: fruit profile um very cool um and so in winemaking wise you tend to pretty much handle uh the four vineyard sites similarly or, or do you do you do fairly different things
0: the only different the only difference is a uh, whole cluster so stem inclusion um we i'm out in the vineyard Chewing on stems as we sort the fruit, chewing on stems, and I make the decision. Um, And we also run a lot of different lots for experimentation, but between 25 and and 100% of the the whole bunches will go into each fermenter. And um, that's, for me, it's, you know, if the stems are a little bit green and tart, I don't mind. I'm not really, I'm not afraid of that. I'd I'd rather our wines have structure and age and have layers of interest, even if there's a hint of green, um, versus just be fruit upon fruit upon fruit. So Lake Colleen in most vintages um, can handle a lot of whole cluster. Destiny Ridge is a bit more sensitive to it. Um, Boucher seems to handle whatever we can throw at it. And then uh, Stony Vine, I found like this really happy place at about 75% where it pokes out the first year or so in bottle and then it integrates and becomes just really radical. So that's, uh, that's how I handle them differently, but otherwise all native fermentation for native fermentation on all or wild whatever you want to call it uh you know i'm i'm in woodenville the place is like a giant petri dish right? <laughs> yeah and there's probably you know like well while well, i haven't had to cut into a bag of yeast in a in a few years there's uh i mean i'm surrounded by 60 wineries that have probably used every yeast ever created so um god knows what's actually fermenting my wines but i like to think that uh, at the very least there's a whole lot of different yeasts that are yeah. kind of like uh, building up their populations and dying off and, and in in uh, succession towards a, a smooth smooth fermentation and each each vineyard definitely has a different fermentation curve as well like they get there's kind of heat spikes at different points and you know they take some take longer to get going some take longer to finish and now, there's certainly a thousand little factors but i also think that some of the the yeasts that are coming in off the vineyard are helping to helping drive those differentiations because if it really was one one powerful yeast doing all the heavy lifting i think uh, the fermentations would be a lot more even and consistent from from vineyard to vineyard
1: mm-hmm.
0: so i tell myself there's uh <laughs> there's uh you know something going on that's uh Innate to innate to the area that the grapes came in from.
1: Yeah, well, whatever helps you sleep at night, Jeff. (laughs) Exactly. Um, so, transitioning a little bit from uh, the winemaking side to the, the restaurant sommelier side, um, I know you worked, um, I think, over the course of the last uh, little while before you were at RN74, you were at a couple of other, uh, I think, pretty iconic uh, Seattle area restaurants with quite different cuisine. You were at uh, Wild Ginger and then at Cafe Juanita um, and, and now, obviously, RN74. H- how does how does building a wine program um, where the cuisine is maybe quite different Um, And yet to some extent, it's my, at least my experience doing it, that, that people kind of will come in and for every person who's like, I want your, I want you to pair my wine. There's 10 people who are like, I like cab. Um, How do you, how do you kind of balance the, the sort of the existing preferences of the, of the, uh, the customer base with sort of the cuisine you're working with?
0: So I think it's, uh. You know, like the like the like the first approach is kind of like if you think about it like if you have a dive bar and you don't have Budweiser you're probably a, you're a friggin idiot like it's uh you need to have you you need to have what is you know the a few the kind of the obligatory wines just from a business standpoint like if you know somebody comes in and they want you know and they want to drink Cabernet because that's what they're happy with like you need to have those I don't necessarily have to carry Camus or Silver Oak, but I'm, but you can be sure I'm going to have a couple Napa Cabernets on the list. Um, with the exception of Cafe Juanita there, I was, I think it's a really special place and Holly runs a show such that, uh, Holly Smith, the chef owner, um, that I was able to, we phased out all California wine and we just did, uh, uh, wines, uh, Italian and Washington. And, but the, the Budweiser analogy I think is Washington. Like you need to have in this in this marketplace, people, we have so much business travel, and so many people come here and they want to experience what's happening locally. I think it's, from a, a business perspective, it's a bad choice to to not have any Washington wine because you should give your guests what they want. Um, but you know, on you know, kind of two sides of the same coin. On the other on the other hand, you also you're creating an experience for your guests and your guests are coming in. They don't, some guests come in and they want the experience that they want to have and they want to dictate that experience. Other people come in and they want to experience what the chef is excited about, what's fresh and what's new and what's delicious and what the sommeliers are, are interested in, but with the caveat that it's complimentary to the cuisine. Um, so in the case of, you know, wild ginger like we an ungodly amount of Riesling, um, Sweet and dry from you know, Germany, Austria, Australia, and Northern Italy—you name it—and um, then and then a strong Northwest list. And that—that's something that's resonated with all my programs. I mean, since yeah, for the decade I've been running wine lists, uh, there's always this Northwest core, um, always playing a little bit of—it's uh, perhaps a, a touch formulaic, but always playing uh, or paying homage to the wineries that helped. Put Washington on the map, and then the new and rising stars, because I think they're, are fun and exciting and delicious, and helping kind of, alter the conversation of what's happening, and then you have the focus of the restaurant. So in the case of Wild Ginger, you know we we you know Riesling is, uh, for better or worse, you know it's it's a hard wine to sell, but it truly is extraordinary with Asian cuisine. Um, in the case of Cafe Juanita, you know, her fu- her food is, I think, is is this very northwest kind of spin on uh, mostly Piemontese but northern Italian cuisine. So we always had a really, you know, verticals of Barolo, Barbaresco, um, venturing into Valtellina, and these really, you know, really wines that are indigenous to her style of cuisine. And so that carried on. Um, at Rn74, I mean, it's Rn74 is the Route de Grand Cru through Burgundy, and so we have a monster Burgundy program. Um, the chef and I are always kind of always coordinating to make sure that a lot of our dishes are complementary to the wines of Burgundy, and that we stay true to the stay true to the concept. And then um, we need to make sure you never you can never forget what the guest is what the guest wants. And so we do, you know, in each of those places, there's you need to have bridge the the style of what perhaps we think is best and what the guest wants and find that happy medium so that they get, when the guest starts flipping through the wine list, they can find what they're after. Um, you ultimately can't be everything to everyone, but you can get pretty damn close. Um, and the other thing is about all three of those restaurants, I mean, um, and then I'd include Cascadia as well, which has been gone for a long time, but really was um, – one of the one of Seattle's kind of iconic restaurants during the dot com boom, and then into when it closed in two thousand eight, it had uh, a great reputation and a really diverse wine program. And that's where I learned that this kind of when you're catering to all walks of life, whether it's you know a young couple on the you know on a rare date out, or you know new parents and they one one night out that they've had, you know that one or two nights out that they get every six months, um, and or this you know or people that have never dined out done fine dining before um to be able to give them something that's accessible and approachable and then you get the ballers that come in and they want to drink romani conti and uh i'm fortunate enough to work in you know work in restaurants where we are you know one we're busy enough and two we have um you know, have ownership that recognizes the value of holding on to those wines and being able to create that experience for mm-hmm. our guests
1: very cool one last question for you before uh, i know you're busy i'll let you go but uh what what in the what in the world of wine uh, maybe setting washington aside for a little while uh is most exciting to you personally like what do you find yourself gravitating towards uh when you're when you have one of those uh rare nights off
0: oh man um well i don't know as far as new and exciting i'm pretty boring i drink a i drink a i walk the walk i drink a whole lot of burgundy wow. um and champagne um I adore Riesling. I guess I adore Piedmont. I guess I, I've, you know, um, as my wife has said to me, like I'm never, you know, I don't, I don't do anything I don't want to. I'm never in a place I want to be. And so these all the wine programs I've gotten to run are really, I've kind of, I've been able to insert myself myself into places where I'm passionate about what the wine programs focuses, even before I put my hands on it. So um, definitely. The, that's kind of my core. Um, I also drink a lot of Northern Rhone. Um, things that are exciting right now, I think the at the affordable level um, in the Northern Rhone, there's a little area called Brazem that's technically Cote Rhone, but that's kind of the transitional point between the north and the south um, where the Drome River empties into the Rhone. And right there, I mean, that was those vineyards were terraced by the Romans, and then after Phylloxera, um, they were hit incredibly hard, and basically nothing was happening there um, viticulturally. And in the last 25 years, um, through a guy named Lombard, and then now all the big names in the Northern Rhone and some in the South are coming in, buying land and replanting vineyards, and some of which, were, as I mentioned, were terraced by Romans that they're restoring. I think that's really cool. Um, additionally, in the Northern Rhone, you'll see uh, Van de Pei, uh, uh, Colle Nero so that's just kind of basically over the hillside, over the hill, um, often up on the plateau. Um, you're, there's some really exciting things happening with Syrah there, and this you get this really funky, wild but kind of lighter bodied incarnation of Syrah. It's really exciting. Um, Sicily seems, continues norello Mascalese and to a lesser extent, Capuccio in Sicily on Mount Etna. I think those wines are fascinating. It's like uh, they're like um, like Barolo, but with great, like grown in sunshine. um, And with, so those wines are really cool and exciting. And the quality level of those in the last, even in the last five vintages of what's been released um, are so much better than they were. And just a few years ago, I got to sit down um, on Mount Aetna tasting uh, with a producer, but he brought in all of, he brought in more than a dozen different producers from the area and just trying the releases, even a few vintages on, like the the learning curve there. I mean, they've been making wine for a thousand years, but the the mind towards quality, the shift that's happened there has been really incredible.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really cool thing that's been happening a lot of places, whether they're uh, old world or new. Is like all these places that maybe for a long time produced, um, you know, produced a lot of wine, but in kind of a bulk. Um, mindset in a lot of cases like i I just there's i mean like i think greece is another example of that where like the quality level has just has gone up you know really really quickly um and there's a lot of really quality-minded producers
0: the sea change is pretty incredible like we've got uh i think part of it is you know it speaks to the kind of the global world of wine and all of these producers now, like these new generations, you know, having when I travel or even during harvest and I go, we'll be walking the vineyards and there'll be, you know, there's a guy from that's, you know, taken a leave from his family business. And there's there's guys from Burgundy. There's guys from Greece. There's guys from, um, you know, southern Italy. That's been, as to your point, like really bulk minded for a very long time. And they're here working here in Washington, working in Oregon and or in, in France and getting to experience these uh, these Iconic wines or emerging regions, but they have this mind of they never had this mind of mass production It's everything so qualitatively minded and they're able to take that back and turn turn what had for a long been You know a a sea of ordinary wine that was sold for you know two three euros a bottle into with really uh, Not a whole lot of changes, but just some minor minor adjustments create wines of of place and resounding quality and really elevate their whole region
1: Indeed, it's uh it's a pretty damn exciting time to be a wine drinker. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Jeff, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. And uh, we'll keep an eye out for, for a little uh was it WT Vintner's Pinot Noir is it gonna be or is it Racontour?
0: It'll, it'll be under WT Vintner's, yeah, raconteur, so the concept with Racontour, everything there are blends across vineyards. Okay. Um WT is everything we make is single vineyard, so um and then the racentour also is uh Ever try to keep it all sub twenty bucks so we got a you know uh, Tuesday night wine versus uh, maybe Friday, Saturday night wine with excellent.
1: WT. Excellent. We'll keep an eye out for the for the Pinot and obviously the the Syrah and uh, Rhone varietals in general and uh, Gruner Veltliner, can't forget my maybe my favorite, which we didn't even talk about, but we'll have to oh. we'll have to touch on that in another podcast.
0: You got it. Shannon right. Blanc coming too. Oh,
1: excellent, very exciting. All right, all right. Uh, thanks again, Jeff. Really appreciate it and uh, talk to you soon. Thanks for having me on. Farewell. Thanks again to Jeff Lindsay Thorson for joining me on Disgorged. You can find Jeff working the floor at Seattle's RN74, as well as making wine in Woodinville. And you can find me online at disgorgedwine.com or on social media at z That's Z-G-E-B-A-L-L-E. Thanks again for listening, and cheers.